G'day mate, Forty here. So a trans woman, so someone who is biologically female, uh, Audrey Hale, uh, who identified as a man, has slaughtered six people at a Christian school. And this is apparently the third cross-dresser or transgender person accused of a mass shooting in the United States in the last 10 months. Right, this is at least the fourth in the last three years. So we had a Colorado spring shooting suspect who was thought to have uh, shot well, at least killed at least five people. I mean, this is happening again and again and again. A Colorado transgender teenager admitted to taking part in a shooting at a Denver area charter school last year, left one student dead, was sentenced Friday to life in prison. So the left-wing media is talking all about guns in this case, but who the heck is this uh, shooter? The shooter was 28 years old and a former student at Covenant School, a small Presbyterian church elementary school in Nashville. Audrey Hale, now identified by police as the person who shot through a locked door to get into the school about 10.30 this morning. A five-officer team went straight to the gunfire on the second floor here at Covenant School and killed the intruder who was armed with an AR-style rifle, an assault-style pistol, and a handgun. At least two of them legally obtained, according to authorities. Even though it appears to have been a rapid police response, three adults and three children were killed before officers could end the incident. The children, a pair of nine-year-olds and one child turning nine, and among the adults, a janitor, a substitute teacher and the head of the school, 60-year-old Catherine Kuntz. Police say they found a horrific crime scene. We know and believe that entry was gained through shooting through one of the doors uh, is how they actually uh, got uh, into the school. But as today's shooting in Nashville, Tennessee demonstrates, there is more work to be done. The fact that this is a daily occurrence in America is unconscionable. In Washington, this latest school mass shooting reverberating to the Senate floor, Illinois Senator Dick Durbin. We need to pass more reform to keep guns out of dangerous hands and to keep our children safe. With the shooter, 28-year-old Audrey Hale, dead, tonight investigators converge on the home where the graphic artist lived. They have found evidence that the attacker cased the school and had maps of the layout. A planned attack, they say, was executed about 10.30 this morning. Let us love each other and support each other and hug each other and pray for each other. Investigators tonight going through the shooter's digital footprint, including a now-removed Facebook post in which Hale wrote of binging on video games. Hale's mother telling ABC she lost her daughter today, saying it's very, very difficult right now, asking for privacy, then hanging up the phone. A neighbor telling ABC News Hale lived at the family's home and was, quote, very religious. Robbie? Watch breaking news on YouTube. Subscribe to ABC. Okay, we'll, we'll keep keep on top of uh, this breaking story. Uh, kind of blends into the other story I wanted to talk about: uh, the growth of parents' rights. So the the House GOP have led a, and passed a passage of a bill called uh, Parents' Bill of Rights. <laughs> given a number 
And in the majority, you're able to reserve the first through 10. This is HR 5 for a very important reason. When you turn about five is when you start going to kindergarten, right? You start your education. But this bill, with Julia Lutlow, kind of sits on five main pillars. The right to know what's being taught in the school and for you to be able to see uh, the reading materials, right? The right to be heard. So many times across this nation we found that parents were attacked, called terrorists, if they simply wanted to go to a school board meeting to be heard about what's going on. The right to see the school budgets and how they spend their money. The right to protect your child's privacy. And the right to be updated on any violent activity at the school. We think these are pretty basic things that everybody and every parent should have a right to. Because it doesn't matter if you're from Louisiana, Florida, Indiana, New York, or North Carolina, or even California. It doesn't matter the color of your skin, your wealth. When you have a child, that is the most important thing in your life. You'll give your life for that child. And one thing we know in this country is education is the great equalizer. And we want the parents to be empowered. And that's what we're doing today that you have a say in your kids' education. All right, so when you expand rights for one group, you take away rights for another group. So the left hates this because the left doesn't want parents to be dominating or running their kids' lives. They prefer to outsource that to experts. So the greatest fear on the left is ignorance and bigotry. And so the left, generally speaking, wants to defer more and more of political decision-making to the experts, including the raising of your kids. You cannot be trusted to raise your kids because you might uh, raise them with all sorts of outdated traditional notions that have now been superseded by innovative techniques for, for life that uh, the left embraces. Greatest fear on the right is disorder and moral chaos. And so the idea that uh, parents are constantly being undercut by public schools and public teachers and by society as a whole, from, from a right-wing perspective, this will lead to moral chaos and anarchy. While for the left, the idea of giving parents more rights, that will diminish the ability of the educated and the expert to oversee the raising of uh, children. So horrifying story going on in Knoxville, Tennessee. Trans shooter killed six. Right now at six, we are staying on top of that breaking news in Nashville, Tennessee, where three children and three adults are dead after a school shooting. Thank you for joining us. I'm Gerald Owens. And I'm Deborah Morgan. We want to get you caught up on the newest information at this hour out of Nashville. In the last 30 minutes, police announced the person who pulled the trigger had maps of the school, including entrances and exits. Officers confirmed the suspect had two AR-style weapons and a handgun. And we also learned the names of the three nine-year-old children and the three adults killed. Mark Boyle is following this breaking story in Nashville from the WRL Live Center. 
Chelsea Donovan is live in Raleigh where police killed a man they say fired shots at cars near a school and at responding officers. We're going to start with the scene in Nashville. All of this happening at the Covenant School. You can see on the map here there was a reunification site nearby for parents and students. Mark, police released a lot of new information about the shooter tonight. A lot of new information confirming that uh, the shooter in this case was 28-year-old Audrey Hale, a former student identifies as transgender, and that's key to this investigation, they say, as a possible motive. And we'll get to that in just a moment. These are the names of the victims here. Police confirming the names and the ages. And one of those who was shot and killed, Catherine Kuntz, right here, was the head of the school. We also would often talk about metal detectors. This school didn't have those. And this shooter, in this case, blew out the side door with their weapon. And that is how the shooter got inside. Here's the brand new information from police just released within the past 25 minutes. We have a manifesto, we have some writings that we're going over uh, that uh, pertain to this date, the actual incident. We have a map drawn out of how this was all going to take place. Uh, there's right now a theory of that's, that we may be able to talk about later, but it's not confirmed. Is there any reason to believe that how she identifies is, has any motive for targeting the school? I, we can give you that at a later time. There is. We're going to talk uh, about some theory to that. We're investigating all the leads, and once we know exactly, we'll let you know. And one of those being questioned right now as they work to develop the motive and why all of this happened in the first place is Audrey Hale's father cooperating with police tonight. Back to you. So I was just reading an article in The New Yorker, and it was on Christian nationalism, how Christian is Christian nationalism, and it mentions which group in America do you think Evinces the shows demonstrates the highest support for Christian nationalism. Blacks. Okay. Blacks are more supportive of Christian nationalism than any other group. You know, you hear in the news media that Christian nationalism is just a code word for white supremacy. Well, its biggest support comes from blacks. So, why are people on the left so opposed to this new Parents' Bill of Rights? Like, why? Are they so suspicious of, say, home homeschooling, right? And there, I've just been reading all these articles about Ron DeSantis, for example. I just put in Ron DeSantis authoritarian. And there's just resort after resort after resort, right? Ron DeSantis authoritarian. How freedom-loving Florida fell for Ron DeSantis. He's authoritarian, guys. The uniquely American future of U.S. authoritarianism. DeSantis, a governor flirting with authoritarianism. Judge Ron DeSantis by his actions. He's authoritarian guy. Small government conservative or authoritarian. Will the real Ron DeSantis please stand up? Ron DeSantis takes his authoritarian ambitions to the next level. All right. Article after article after article describing Ron DeSantis as authoritarian. Ron DeSantis follows in Donald Trump's authoritarian footsteps. So Donald Trump was so authoritarian that uh, when America went up in flames with the Black Lives Matter riots in late May, June of 2020, Donald Trump stepped in and did what exactly? Conservatives angry about school indoctrination are telling on themselves. Ron DeSantis would kill democracy, guys, slowly and methodically. Look, this is New York Magazine. This is The Atlantic. This is The Guardian. This is MSNBC. This is Vanity Fair, Huffington Post. This is wired, right? Letting us know how authoritarian. 
the new republic a DeSantis presidency could e be even worse than trump why because he's authoritarian esquire ron DeSantis, a man of no qualities represents corruption cruelty and nepotism and he's authoritarian why florida's new university restrictions are straight out of the global authoritarian playbook Vox, ron DeSantis's many reinventions he's authoritarian Black History Month roundtable pushed back on authoritarian DeSantis policy. What a disaster. Right? Palm Beach won't get to host a Black History Month roundtable because of Ron DeSantis's authoritarianism. Vanity Fair. Ron DeSantis shouldn't be covered like just any other Republican. You know why he shouldn't be covered like just any other Republican? Because he is authoritarian. DeSantis attacked as authoritarian for saying teachers should take away cell phones during class. MSNBC, Ron DeSantis' authoritarian war on education, guys, it is reaching new heights. New York Magazine, DeSantis promises Florida will control Disney content. He is authoritarian. Ron DeSantis hates democracy and freedom. Uh, DeSantis blasted for authoritarian takeover of New College. Uh, Larry Hogan calls Ron DeSantis' education bill authoritarian. DeSantis' win will show America's testing ground for authoritarian takeover. Ron DeSantis thinks he can troll his way to the White House and be an authoritarian. Uh, Sununu takes more shots at authoritarian DeSantis. Conservatives' educational push resurrects authoritarian tactics. Guys, U.S. Republicans are willing to sacrifice democracy for power to become authoritarian. Students across Florida walk out in protest of Ron DeSantis, the authoritarian. This is scary stuff. Ron DeSantis' stop work act is stopped by a Florida judge. They're stopping him from being authoritarian. Guys, the Republican Party may not be fascist, but it's definitely getting fascier. Florida legislature moves to backstop Ron DeSantis' partisan stunts among them becoming authoritarian. Joy Reid blasts Ron DeSantis as a more authoritarian version of Trump. The march, guys, the march towards despotic authoritarianism. MSNBC hosts and transgender guests a slam for claims against Ron DeSantis that he's authoritarian. MSNBC analyst declares Ron DeSantis authoritarian for proposing schools take away phones during class. Larry Hogan calls Ron DeSantis' education bill big government and authoritarian. Guys, is Florida's blogger registration bill inspired by Viktor Orban? Trump's MAGA heirs want a kind of gentler authoritarianism. New York Magazine writer wrecked for calling Ron DeSantis a more competent authoritarian than Trump. Ron DeSantis carves out a branch as a book-burning anti-LGBTQ racist authoritarian. How authoritarian Ron DeSantis has made Florida a laboratory of fascist politics. Whoa. DeSantis' authoritarianism on full display with voter arrest videos. This is from MSNBC. Guys, if you crack down on illegal voting, that's authoritarian. Ron DeSantis lambasted. This is from The Independent, so you know it's fair. Lambasted for authoritarian ban on African-American studies course in Florida high schools. Ron DeSantis is more polished, less bombastic than Trump, but is he less of a threat to democracy? New York Magazine's Jonathan Chait doubles down on comparing DeSantis to Trump. Authoritarian guys to the bone. 
Guys, our institutions, according to the New Republic, will not save us from Republican authoritarianism. Scary. Does Hungary offer a glimpse of our authoritarian future? Do you realize what, what scary things are going on in, in Florida? That uh, this, this guy, Ron DeSantis, he's authoritarian. Seems like a memo went out encouraging me to, to use the word authoritarian. Hail Ron, hail our people. Oh, man, I, I, I have to admit, I just didn't realize how scary the times that, that we're, we're living in. Baron von Schneider, three weeks ago, KGP addresses the governor's anti-drag law, immediately mentioned safety for kids at school. Well, safety for kids at school. This was a direct retaliation for, oh, for the governor's anti-drag law. Yeah, so glad that there's sign language whenever we have these public events. So why is it so authoritarian to, for example, have parents' rights? Right, so is this the first time that liberals have called conservatives authoritarian? No. I mean, I'm looking at Ronnie Goldman's excellent book on conservative oppression, and he says liberals have successfully pegged conservatism as authoritarian in the public mind. Now, conservatives insist that the authoritarian tendencies of liberals run much deeper than theirs. And this is Kevin Williamson of the National Review diagnosing the roots of liberal hostility toward homeschooling. The left's organizing principle is control. And the possibility that children might commonly be raised outside of its control matrix is an existential threat from the progressive point of view. Institutions such as free markets and free speech terrify progressives because they are the result of arrangements in which nobody is in control. Homeschooling isn't for everybody, but every homeschool student, like every firearm in private hands, is a quiet little declaration of independence. It's no accident that the people who want to seize your guns are also the ones who want to seize your children. Let's get a little tucker. So a horrifying mass killing at a Christian school in Tennessee used immediately by the administration as a pretext for disarming the population. But could there be more to it? Could we just have witnessed an anti-Christian act, one of many? Apparently this shooting was undertaken by someone who described him or herself as a trans person. We don't know. We're getting details very soon. We wanted to bring in, though, Kelly J. Keene. She has organized an event in Australia and New Zealand called Let Women Speak. And the point of the event was to allow women to actually talk about issues without being shouted down by men dressed as women. Predictably, at the event, Kelly J. Keene was attacked by men dressed as women. There are no police anywhere. Here's what it looked like. This is in Auckland, New Zealand on Saturday. One of the thugs you just saw poured tomato juice on Kelly J. Keene. She joins us tonight to tell us what exactly happened. Kelly J. Keene, thank you so much for coming on. Um, was it as awful as that video suggests it was? I genuinely feared for my life. I thought I was going to be crushed to death or stomped to death. Um, women got injured. Uh, somebody got their foot broken. Uh, it was absolutely just carnage.
I mean, this is the picture of extremism here. You're trying to have a conversation as a woman speaking to other women without being shouted down. I think you're taking a, an inherently moderate, pro-human, traditional <laughs> position. The people around you look like crazed and dangerous extremists. Is that what it felt like? Yeah, absolutely. The authoritarian left um, has has finally peaked, and now we can all see what exactly that might look like. And it looks like Auckland in New Zealand, and it's it's scary as hell. Uh, it, can you just? I, I characterize what this event was about, but can you put it in your own words? What were you doing there? Basically, we create space and amplification for women to come and talk about what's going on in their lives and the fears that they have with uh, what transgenderism will, will take from women and children. So safeguarding, um, rights, spaces, language, uh, those sorts of things. And, and women come and speak and it will just be ordinary women, not, not anybody that anybody's ever heard of, but they will tell their story. And these, uh, this mob decided that they didn't want women to speak in any way, shape or form. It was disgusting. It's, it's something that you would imagine in some sort of Middle Eastern theocracy, but it's happening in the Anglosphere in New Zealand. Um, I don't uh, think yeah. <laughs> anyone saw this coming uh, in a purportedly feminist country. Kelly Jane Keene, I'm glad you're okay tonight. Thank you so much for telling us what happened to you. Thank you. So we want to bring an update on that story. Trace Gallagher standing by with new details in what happened in that mass shooting in Nashville, apparently carried out by a member of the so-called trans community. Trace? Tucker, we're learning more about the suspect in today's deadly shooting at the Covenant School in Nashville. Law enforcement now says the 28-year-old woman had drawn a detailed map of the school and conducted surveillance before killing three students and three adults. The suspect who was killed by police is also believed to be a former student at the private school. Nashville Police Chief John Drake says the suspect who was female and identified as transgender left behind a manifesto. Watch. No, we have a manifesto. We have some writings that we're going over uh, that uh, pertain to this day, the actual incident. We have a map drawn out of how this was all going to take place. Uh, there's right now a theory of that's, that we may be able to talk about later, but it's not confirmed. The victims have been identified as three nine-year-old students and three employees, all of whom were in their 60s. As news breaks out, we'll break in. We'll have much more on this coming up on Fox News at Night. Okay, we'll keep uh, an eye on uh, this, this breaking news story. And uh, Kevin Williamson, this is back in 2014 for National Review, right? Talking about they're coming for your children. They are coming for your children, National Review. Homeschoolers represent the only authentically radical social movement in the United States. Occupy Wall Street was a fashion statement, and so they must be suppressed, as a malevolent committee of leftist academics and union bosses under the direction of Governor Daniel Molloy is preparing to do in Connecticut, using the Sandy Hook massacre as a pretext. The ghouls invariably rush to the podium after every school massacre, issuing their insipid press releases before the bodies have even cooled, and normally they're after your guns. But the Molloy gang is after your children. Malloy's Committee on the Newtown Shootings is recommending that Connecticut require homeschooling families to present their children to the local authorities periodically for inspection, to see to it that their psychological and social growth is proceeding in the desired direction. Wow. All right, this bill would require that parents have to present their kids 
all right, for experts to see whether their psychological and social growth is proceeding in the desired direction. All right? For anyone even passingly familiar with contemporary government schools, which are themselves a peerless source of social and emotional dysfunction, this development is bitterly ironic. All right? So these Democrats saying <laughs> that we, we need to more closely regulate homeschooling. I mean, this is this is incredible. And let's go back to Ronnie Goldman in his great book on conservative oppression. So like many on the left, conservative claimants of cultural oppression believe that the personal is the political. So given the left's insatiable lust for control, what were once purely private preferences on how best to educate one's children have now become political acts. They are quiet little declarations of independence through which to hold off liberal left hegemony for just one more day. Right? That's what you do when you homeschool your kids. Conservative claims cultural oppression seek not primarily to highlight liberalism's flaws as a political philosophy, but to expose its transgressions as a social practice that works to demoralize and delegitimize those who remain steadfastly loyal to traditional American values, gun owners, homeschoolers, housewives, churchgoers, the police, ranchers, small business owners, and others. So the ordered liberty of the conservative is a basic threat to liberal control, and so it must be targeted at every turn as a danger to the civilized order, the idea of which has now become identified with liberalism itself. So if liberals are hostile toward the homeschooling to which some conservative parents are drawn, this is because those parents cannot be counted upon to civilize their children in the manner prescribed, that is to raise their children as liberals. This is why those children must be seized by the state and forcefully educated by you know, dominantly left-wing teachers. So non-liberals see themselves perennially as losers in this war of ideas. It's always rigged against them. And they see themselves as a quasi-ethnic group being encroached upon by a foreign colonial power, liberalism, that is endlessly contemptuous of their native folkways and bent on replacing these with its own supposedly more advanced culture. So the crusade against private gun ownership is for the left a culture war, a culture kampf. So the sort of people who like to own or enjoy firearms, the sort of people who are most intensely detested by the social tendency that gave us a Barack Obama. Right? People who own guns and homeschool their kids, just a bunch of atavistic throwbacks and bitter clingers, as Obama put it. So the left's jihad against hunters, against rural people, against shooting enthusiasts, against Second Amendment partisans will do effectively nothing to prevent lunatics from shooting up schools or shopping malls, but they would exploit the victims of these awful crimes in the service of what amounts to a very focused form of snobbery. So liberal elites are committed to their own particular brand of identity politics, complete with their own special kind of otherization. So the bitter clingers who homeschool and own guns, these people who stand in the way of gun control, are not merely criticized as wrong or as misguided. They are despised as occupants of a lower moral and cognitive order. They are atavisms of a barbaric past that liberals alone have superseded. So whereas now eclipsed traditionalist hierarchies revolved around perceived differences in things like sexual purity, work ethic, religious affiliation, family pedigree, and ethnic bona fides, the new status hierarchy of liberalism is rooted in cognitive elitism, centers around a morally charged division between those who are aware and woke and those who are not, those who possess the psychic maturity to accede to liberalism and those who lack it and must forcefully be reformed. 
So this kind of left-wing identity politics always takes refuge in some pragmatic-sounding pretext such as the danger of guns or the inadequacies of homeschooling. But we know this pragmatism is an elaborate facade for a status hierarchy that liberals refuse to acknowledge. And this hierarchy goes overlooked by the thinking people, by the educated, because thoughtfulness and education are themselves now defined by the liberal dispensation. Right? To be thoughtful and educated is just a mere badge of honor that is conferred on liberals withheld from non-liberals. So liberals' near monopoly on the means of cultural production lets their own kind of identity politics pass under the radar screen. It's camouflaged as just hard-nosed pragmatism and utilitarianisms. But uh, conservatives see through this camouflage, right? By nature, conservatives tend to be placid, compliant, and respectful. For the most part, we are civil, patriotic Americans who simply want to be left alone to be with our families and, yes, our guns and our religion. So conservatives are left speechless and stupefied by the never-ending onslaught of personal attacks, lies, name-calling that the left rains down on them. So conservative claimers of cultural oppression are united in the conviction that liberalism's rational facade conceals what is a campaign of psychological warfare whose purpose is to undermine the self-confidence of the conservative culture and to supplant it with a liberal one. So that's why you get this profound incongruity between the good nature, innocuousness of ordinary conservatives and the venomous vitriol to which liberals subject them. So liberals subject conservatives to verbal pogroms. Liberals reduce conservatives' deepest convictions to just outward manifestations of unconscious hostilities. These are not positions to be understood. These are symptoms to be diagnosed and diseases to be attacked. So let's get uh, a little bit more here from Tucker Carlson. And he's... Uh, going to be talking a lot about this mass shooting. Well, I woke up to go get me a cold pop, and then I thought somebody was barbecuing. I said, oh, Lord Jesus, it's a fire. <laughs> then I ran out. I didn't grab no shoes or nothing, Jesus. I ran for my life, and then the smoke got me. I got bronchitis. Ain't nobody got time for that. Remember that video from a couple of years ago? Maybe you shared these images on your screen right now. If so, according to CNN, you are a bigot. Literally, you're a racist. Okay. Quote, if you're black and you've shared such images online, you get a pass. But if you're white, you may have inadvertently perpetrated one of the most insidious forms of contemporary racism. You may be wearing digital blackface. Right. So different standards for different groups of American citizens. What we have here, of course is a situation where the demand for racism in this country has far outstripped its supply. Jason Whitlock is the host of Fearless. He joins us to assess. Jason Whitlock, thank, thanks for coming back. It's great to see you. Uh, you always kind of take these things to the, to the deeper level um, that we miss on the first pass. What do you make of this? I, it's what's obvious. It's what you just said. There's just not enough racism, and so they're inventing new forms of racism. And the next thing CNN will be telling us is about digital lynching. Yeah. And digital lynching is when uh, someone criticizes Barack Obama, Michelle Obama, or Stacey Abrams or Kamala Harris. And then they'll have digital slavery. And that'll be when Trump returns to Twitter and someone right. likes a Trump tweet. Right. That's digital slavery. <laughs> exactly. And then there'll be systemic digital racism. 
And that will be, and that is when Elon Musk purchased Twitter and quit shadow banning uh, conservatives. That's, you know, systemic digital racism. They got to come up with this stuff because they're hiding from the fact, they're trying to cover the fact that while anti-black racism has decreased in America and everybody can see it, anti-white racism has increased in America and anybody that's not have their head in the sand buried can see that. And so they're just covering up the fact that anti-white racism is out of control. No, the president's doing it. Uh, everybody over social media is doing it. And they want to hide from it by creating, oh, yeah, this digital, you're doing digital blackface. It, it, it's a joke, Tucker. It, it's it's a scam. But there, the, the cost is, I mean, there are many costs probably, but one of them is the assumption that everybody in America secretly hates everyone else on the basis of race. I just don't, that's not the reality that I experience living in this country. It's not remotely the reality. But again, these organizations, CNN, most of corporate media, they're there to distract us from the truth. Right. That's and right. the truth is that China, just like you did at the top of your show with Tic Tac, is sexually perverting young people. Disney is sexually perverting young people. They're normalizing this whole transgender thing and corrupting our kids and targeting our kids. They want us debating silly stuff, digital right. blackface, That's right. and not looking at the pure evil that they're imposing on kids. Yeah. If they were doing it to me and you, we could handle it. We can fight. They're doing it to kids. It's evil. It's wicked. It's satanic. Yeah. And the money stuff, especially. Like, where'd all the money from SVB go? <laughs> Look, where's all the money? <laughs> They're stealing all the money. Shut up, racist. What are we doing in Ukraine? <laughs> exactly. What are we doing in Ukraine? We can't talk about that, but we can talk about digital blackface. Exactly. Because commenting on a war between two white populations is racist. It's too funny. Jason Whitlock, a wise man. Thanks for coming on tonight. Thank you, Tucker. Well, Lady Gaga's father has been in the news recently for noting that New York City has not improved. Okay, there's that. But he's also celebrating a, an end to a personal struggle, a victory. And we always want to talk to people who've won that battle. He joins us. Get uh, more information now about this uh, trans shooter in Nashville. Who exactly was this? Five o'clock, if you're expecting news to at five, we are continuing our coverage of this tragedy that began at 10.13 this morning. Here's a recap. Deadly shooting in Green Hills this morning. Covenant Presbyterian School on Burton Hills Boulevard. Seven people we now know were killed in this shooting. Three of those children, all aged nine. Three adults, 261, 160. And the shooter, 28-year-old Audrey Elizabeth Hale. She has now was taken down by Metro Police officers. An investigation is ongoing in the Belmont area of her father's home to find out any information that officers can find out about a possible motive about why she chose to take this action today. And we're going to head back over to the WKRN.com alert desk. We have information just coming in from Chris O'Brien, who's joining us live. Hey, Bob, mm -hmm. as you just touched on there, Bob, we don't know a ton 
uh, of details about the shooter, but let me just walk you through a little bit about what we do know. Now, you just said, Bob, 28-year-old uh, Andre Hale is the suspected shooter. Uh, investigators believe they live at Brightwood Avenue in the Belmont Hillsboro neighborhood. Investigators uh, searched a home there. They found detailed maps drawn of the school, including things like surveillance and entry points. Uh, they also found a manifesto they're going over that marks today's date down. Uh, Hale does not have any criminal history. MNPD believes uh, that there is no criminal history there and that they got through the school by shooting through a door. Now, Hale was a former student at the Covenant, Covenant School, rather. Uh, they do identify as transgender. Uh, they are not sure exactly if or how that ties in. MNPD says they had two assault rifles and a handgun. They believe they brought two of those three legally. Now, there is not a ton of detail as far as motive or what could have prompted uh, this really tragic, uh, tragic uh, action, uh, rather, but we will keep you updated as the night progresses. Wow. So We're continuing to get a little bit of new... On uh, this story, the Christian school shooting... And uh, good, good article in the New Yorker today. How Christian is Christian nationalism? And the answer is it's not very Christian. All right. But it doesn't need to be. Just people who simply want to hold on to some of the remnants of the civilization that they were born into. And they just see it you know, getting torn away. So New Yorker says many Americans who advocate Christian nationalism have little interest in religion. Exactly. It is just code word for holding on. <laughs> against the onrushing tide of leftist domination. An aversion to American culture as it currently exists. Yeah, uh, some people aren't really down with all the sweetness that is drenching America right now. So if you're finding American culture a little too sweet for your taste these days, well, you might just be a Christian nationalist. So what really defines the movement? I would say what defines the movement is that you find American culture just a little too sweet right now you're going to tone down all the sweetness so this was a major event uh, i think january 2016 during the republican presidential primary donald trump appeared on stage at dort university it's a christian institution in iowa and he made a confession of faith i'm a true believer he says and then he says you Christians have the strongest lobby ever, but I never hear about a Christian lobby. Then he makes his audience a promise. If I am there in the White House, you are going to have plenty of power. So he's saying Christianity will have power under me. You're going to have somebody <clears throat> representing you very, very well. And so by the time he left office, the relationship between Donald Trump and evangelical Christians and Orthodox Jews was very close. So over 80% of Orthodox Jews and Evangelical Christians voted for Donald Trump in, in 2020. So the events between Trump and his Christian supporters had became, become something sinister. This ideology is sometimes called Christian nationalism, a description that often functions as a diagnosis. So a podcast about leaving the Christian ministry called Rev Covery. So Justin Gentry suggests that Christian nationalism, 70% of uh, Christian nationalists don't even know they're Christian nationalists. They're just like, this is normal Christianity from the time of Jesus. Well, you don't even have to be a Christian to be a Christian nationalist. It just means you don't enjoy the sweetness of contemporary American culture. 
like to dial back the sacrament sweetness. So in contemporary America, right, the practice of Christianity is becoming increasingly abnormal. So measures of religious observance have shown a sharp decrease over the past quarter century. So how do you have the rise of Christian nationalism when the practice of Christianity is going down? So Christian nationalism, very much a minority movement by, by people who aren't thrilled with America becoming a post-Christian nation. And uh, Alex Kashuta has, has done shows on you know how stupid and bad uh, Christian nationalism is. So Alex Kashuta seems to have you know, less things of value to say per words that she expresses than any other distant right podcast host of which I'm aware. She does have fantastic guests on her show. But boy, does she blather and just say very, very little. So there is no canonical manifesto of Christian nationalism. So press one if you are a Christian nationalist. Press two if you are afraid of Christian nationalism. So two sociologists tracked replies to six propositions. One, the federal government should declare the United States a Christian nation. If you say yes to that, you're a Christian nationalist. The federal government should advocate Christian values. Federal government should enforce strict separation of church and state. If you say no to that, you're a Christian nationalist. Federal government should allow the display of religious symbols in public spaces. Success of the United States is part of God's plan. Federal government should allow prayer in public schools. So there are these books by these two sociologists taking America back for God, which they predict a growing schism. Christian nationalism gives divine sanction to ethnocentrism and nativism. Remember, the, the group with the highest support for Christian nationalism in the United States is black America. So apparently Christian nationalism is a divisive creed, unlike liberalism, unlike gay rights, unlike trans rights, ever more civil rights for more and more you know, sexual practices, uh, unlike... Uh, more and more rights for sacred groups who cannot be criticized. It's Christian nationalism that is divisive. Right? Apparently, Christian nationalisms, Christian nationalists are more likely than other groups to believe that Muslims and atheists hold morally inferior values. Well, if you believe in your religion, if you believe that uh, your way of life or your people are superior to other people, which is a normal, natural, and even in mild to moderate amounts, a healthy attitude, right? You will believe that your in-group is superior to other groups. Then uh, these sociologists expanded their argument last year in the flag and the cross. So Christian now refers to less a theology than to a heritage. Yes. So most Jews in America don't practice Judaism, but uh, if they're an identifying Jew, they will have various identification with Jewish heritage. So many about 20% plus of respondents who want the government to declare U.S. a Christian nation are secular or adherents of a non-Christian faith. So Christian is becoming something more like Jewish. It's an identity much more than a profession of faith. Black Americans more likely than any other racial group to support Christian nationalism. So all these academic sociologists want to claim that Christian nationalism is a white identity movement. It's a white identity movement, and the highest proportion of support that it gets comes from blacks. Apparently, Christian nationalists 
disapprove of illegal immigration and they're concerned about anti-Christian and anti-white discrimination. And uh, did you know that Christian nationalism might lead to Jim Crow 2.0 with non-white undocumented immigrants singled out for mass deportations on an unprecedented scale? Wouldn't that be awful if people who are in the United States illegally had the law enforced and they were ejected from the country? My God, what that would just be like another Holocaust if people who are in the United States illegally would uh, would uh, you know be be deported? My God, that is that is scary, man. Th these these academics have really got my attention now to think that Christian nationalism means deporting illegal immigrants. Apparently, white Christian nationalists express more hostility not towards immigrants or Muslims, but towards socialists. So maybe Christian nationalism is firmly within the historical mainstream of American conservatism. So as a whole, the six Christian nationalist propositions appear to be correlated with many conservative impulses. But uh, these six propositions are not that difficult to defend. So if you're looking for a charter for American Christian nationalism, it might begin in 1630, the year that John Winthrop, future governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, delivered his speech comparing the settlement to a city upon a hill in covenant with God, serving as a beacon to all people. How scary is that? Just imagine if Americans started envisioning their country as a city upon a hill in a covenant with God, serving as a beacon to all people. So this uh, phrase comes from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Wow, those are really frightening words. My God, I'm cowering. In the 18th century, arguments for American independence were often cast in religious terms. So Congregationalists, Protestant Christians, who structured their churches around ideals of self-governance and free conscience, were particularly influential. So then, as now, Christian identity in America was often tribal. Yes, there are black churches and Mexican churches and Korean churches and Filipino churches. So there's a book called Heathen by religious historian Catherine Jin Lum that suggests that the divide between Christian and heathen was the central divide in American life. So the original British colonies took efforts to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this was both an engagement and an exclusion. So the scourge of heathenism was a reason to oppose Chinese immigration and to support the annexation of the Hawaiian Islands. So on the distant right, there's a lot of talk about how Christian nationalism is not nationalism and that Christianity just melts away racial, ethnic, uh, national ties, but that's not inherent. In some times and circumstances, Christianity does decrease national racial ties. In other times and circumstances, it increases and heightens racial and ethnic ties. So the power of Christianity waxes and wanes. You have waves of religious revival. You have waves of religious retreat, right? Christianity, like Judaism, like uh, capitalism, like socialism, varies depending on what. 
depending on events, my dear boy. Depending on circumstances, my dear boy. Depending upon situations, my dear boy. Certain situations seem to call for more government. Other situations seem to call for less government. Certain situations predispose people towards reaching for Christianity. Other situations predispose people to reaching for a more secular life. So the phrase under God was added to the Pledge of Allegiance in 1954. God we trust was adopted as the country's official motto in 1956. So Senator Joseph McCarthy believed America was engaged in a final all-out battle between communistic atheism and Christianity. So in America, Christianity works best as an organizing principle when there is a strong non-Christian force to organize against. And so there's a political scientist at Georgetown, Paul Miller, who's come out with a book, The Religion of American Greatness, What is Wrong with Christian Nationalism? And he writes, as a Christian and as a patriot, he's proudly pro-life, he is a zealot for religious liberty, but he is troubled by those political leaders who don't humbly seek God's guidance and instead insist, when a nation's ways please the Lord, that nation is blessed with supernatural health, help, so this political scientist wants Christians to be more aware of the undemocratic elements of the founding. Well, democracy is not an unalloyed benefit. So it's not, uh, it's not the most heinous thing to wish for a little less democracy or a little more democracy in the United States. Uh, we have all these different powers operating in the United States at the same time. You've got the powers of oligarchy, the powers of dictatorship, the powers of bureaucracy, which is largely beyond the reach of the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch. Uh, you have the forces of capitalism, you have the forces of socialism, you have the forces of communism, you have the forces of nationalism. The United States is a complicated place. And so certain events will happen and some of those forces will wax in power and other of those forces will wane in power. So this particular political scientist doesn't want Christian nationalism. He wants an acknowledgement that Anglo-Protestant culture has shaped American ideals. Wow, what a scary thought, acknowledging that. And I hope that those ideals will endure even as the culture changes. Now, there are some intellectuals, aside from Godwood Podcast, who have made the case for Christian nationalism. So we have Stephen Wolfe, a political philosopher and a faithful Presbyterian, has published The Case for Christian Nationalism, and it's blurbed by Israeli philosopher Yoram Hazoni. So he advances a series of syllogisms designed to convince believers that they must help America to become more Christian and more of a nation. So yeah, why would you not want to create an environment in which your kind flourish? Right? You would think that every living thing would strive towards creating more and more of an environment in which its type of life flourishes. Is that, is that really so awful? So, he has firm opinions on whether non-Christians are entitled to political equality? No. Well, right now, it's just like free reign on Christians, right? You can denigrate Christians. You can mock Christians. You can effectively urinate on Christians. And there's very little blowback. You're unlikely to lose your job. You're not going to get disciplined at your university. Right? You're not going to get drummed out of political life if you despise Christians and Christianity. But if you take that same derogatory attitude towards sacred groups like blacks, Jews, gays, the transgendered, Chinese, Koreans, Mexicans, right? you say the same thing 
about protected, sacred, non-Christian groups, and your life will be ruined. You'll be drummed out of university. You'll be forced to take sensitivity classes. Right? So it's verbally open season on Christians, but if you employed the same type of rhetoric about blacks or Jews or gays, right, then <laughs> your life would be smashed. So should political atheism be within the bounds of acceptable opinion? He says no. Should arch heretics be justifiably put to death? He says yes. Wow. So this guy, Stephen Wolf, he says Christians are too quick to dismiss the virtues of tribalism. Well, at this time and place in America, in the West, right, Christians are way too quick to dismiss the virtues of tribalism. When Christians talk about tribal and tribalism, it's always in a derogatory fashion. It's probably time that uh, Christians rediscover the virtues of nation, extended family, and tribe is just another word for extended family. So tribalism, the notion that people are drawn to others who share, who have things in common with them, who share their ethnicity, right? Ethnicity is not just blood ties, it's also language, manners, customs, stories, taboos, rituals, calendars, social expectations, duties, loves, and religion. Why would you not feel a bond with people who share those things with you? So at one point, Wolf disparages ethnic identity politics, but he also suggests elsewhere, in some cases, amicable ethnic separations along political lines might be beneficial for everyone. Yes, the normal, natural way to divide things up, all right, is to divide up on ethnic lines. Let's get a little Tucker here. If you had kids, you probably know already how TikTok works. TikTok lets users upload short videos. Usually they're under 30 seconds. What's interesting is that the content of these videos varies a lot depending upon what country you're in. If you're in China, where TikTok is headquartered, you tend to get more educational content. But if you live in this country, you get an awful lot of filth and propaganda tailored for kids. We're not guessing about this. We ran an experiment to prove it last summer. Watch. The TikTok that Chinese residents, children in China get to see, is very different from the one your kids are looking at here. Now, in China, where TikTok is known under a different name, videos like these are very common. Watch. Hey, cut, cut out using that uh, copyrighted music, bro. What are, you, what are you trying to do to my show? TikTok stuff like this. Cut, cut out. Cut out the copyrighted music. Man, I'm trying to run a high-quality, upstanding, you know, pro-social, within-the-terms-of-service program. And uh, you're playing all this music that's going to get me a copyright strike. Well, that's kind of weird. Can you see what's going on here? Well, China does. They run TikTok. And China knows if you want a productive society that extends beyond, say, next week, you teach your kids about hard work and creativity and personal responsibility, respect for authority. 
But if you want to destroy a society, you funnel a ton of garbage to kids about gender ideology and twerking. As the account Libs of TikTok has documented extensively, that's exactly what TikTok is doing here. There's a whole genre of videos of teachers boasting about indoctrinating kids. I have had multiple students come out to me, not just with their sexuality, but also with their gender identity. It's one of the reasons I think it's so important to be out and loud and proud. I teach my elementary school students about gender identity. Some people are girls, some are boys, some are both, some are neither. I might tell this kid, we do have a flag in the class that you can pledge your allegiance to. And he like looks around and he goes, oh, that one? So it goes without saying that net net, as they say, TikTok is not a positive influence on American society. Okay, thanks, uh, Tucker. And looking at the chat, Alexandra makes interesting points. Says the only way to fix this is through coercion, which is big government is antithetical to libertarianism, which has hijacked the right. So when conservatives and people like Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump are accused of being authoritarian. Uh, authoritarian in which direction if you are authoritarian say towards super predators and lock them up you expand freedom for everyone else who can enjoy more of life can participate more in public life can walk the streets right can uh, you know get to know neighbors participate you know, more fully more happily more socially uh, build ties with other people all sorts of great freedoms are enhanced when you act in an authoritarian manner towards super predators so say, restricting the freedom of teachers to propagandize your children into a trans or, or gay ideology, right, expands the, the freedom of your kids and of your family, right? Promoting parental rights and reducing the rights of public school teachers, all right? It reduces the freedom of public school teachers. It enhances the freedom of parents and of children. So authoritarian in which direction? Whenever you increase rights for one group, right, you decrease rights for other groups, right? So back to the New Yorker on Christian nationalism. So Stephen Wolf's book avoids explicit claims about race, but after its publication in November, a shadow was cast over this book, guys, by an investigation that Alastair Roberts, an English theologian, conducted into the public writing of one of Wolf's close friends and collaborators, Thomas Accord. He hosted a podcast with Wolf. So Accord, under a pseudonym, had been posting online in support of what he calls robust race realist white nationalism. God, that is scary. So there was a Twitter account that responded to a post from the American Jewish Committee by writing, OK, Jew, have you ever heard anything so scary as someone writing, OK, Jew? I am traumatized. So two days ago, I was looking like Ellen DeGeneres. Now I'm looking like uh, Mayorkas, the the dude in charge of uh, Homeland Security. So, what what's the what's the best way to go? And I, I got to disavow. Don't put South African necklaces and gas and stuff like that. We are a place of radical love and inclusion. We're not God. Come on, guys. I thought you knew the program here. We don't advocate for violence, criminal behavior. We don't, you know, invoke genocide as solution to political disagreements. Get with the program. God. My God.
what the hell what the hell what 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 are you guys thinking you, you think that uh, gassing and south african necklaces that this is like acceptable uh, this is acceptable um my god i i can't believe i have to put my very good friend elliot blatt into a timeout i i can't believe i'm doing that but there's no way you can invoke gas and suggest uh, violence against people on this show that's absolutely unacceptable right I, i'm seriously i'm not going to put up with that so don't don't do it and it's indicative that that you would write this publicly there is something really broken something really sick something really off something incredibly antisocial self-destructive you know it's indicative of you've been morally desensitized by online discourse yeah my good friend elliot blast a good friend you cannot invoke gassing people and killing people uh, on the chat like no way jose that that is not on that's unacceptable this is not what this channel is about and and that you would think that i mean that someone would do this under their own name in a public forum and just invoke let's gas people and and give them and give them you know the the Af south african necklace dude something's really wrong like i used to say this to to casey he would he would say things about genocide and all sorts of you know invocations of you know horrible things just as you know thought experiments etc and i say what the hell are you doing bro like you can't do that in public don't you have anything in your life that you care about i mean why would you commit this this you know social self-destruction you know publicly under, under your own name he is you know posting this this crazy destructive idiotic you know daily stormer type material and the answer i'd get back is oh i'm fine bro don't worry about me i mean what is wrong with you if you think it's a-okay to post publicly that uh, gassing people and murdering people is you know the way to go when you know they have different attitudes towards uh, homosexuality or the transgender stuff right that's insane there's something incredibly broken in you if you think it's cool to be publicly posting particularly under your own real name to publicly post invocations to kill people that's insane what's wrong with you what the hell is wrong with you that uh, have we just become so desensitized you know have we just consumed so much you know uh alt-right uh, humor that uh it's just no big deal to you know just throw out invocations of of, of mass murder and, and genocide yeah i mean did you overdose on 4chan i mean the the perils of the e-personality you think that if you post this kind of stuff you know online that that then never feeds back into your real life that that has just no effect on you of course it desensitizes you of course it makes it more difficult for you to interact in the real world of course that will socially isolate you it could absolutely destroy your life blow up your life but even if it doesn't dramatically blow up your life you are blowing up so many possible opportunities for human connection by engaging in that kind of talk like why on earth would you think that that's acceptable 
Why on earth do you think that that's a smart, wise, you know, good thing to to do? I, I mean, that's insane. If you are posting publicly online, particularly under your real name, that people who have different positions from you on homosexuality and the trans movement, you know, deserve deserve death, right? There's something deeply wrong with you. You have become so incredibly desensitized. You have lost touch with reality, right? Your balloon is no longer tethered to the ground, all right? I mean, and, and what's incredible is when people uh, who are married do this. What's incredible is when people who are married with children do this. What's incredible is when people who are married with children and in a prestigious position in the world, right? They have a blessed position in life, right? Where they have, they may be a professor, they may be, you know, employed at, at a think tank, they may be, you know, a PhD student at an elite university, and they go on with this kind of behavior, and and uh, it, it doesn't go well, all right? If, if there isn't a dramatic, you know, blow up and destruction of their life, there is a strong isolating effect by doing this. You're making it more difficult for you to interact with normal people. My God. I mean, how, how did we get here? Like, what role have I played to morally desensitize people to think that this kind of public discussion is uh, just perfectly acceptable, that when you see someone who's got a different political, cultural, or religious point of view, that, uh, oh, off with their heads. Just absolutely insane thinking. Okay, anyway, here's the friend of the Christian nationalist, uh, Thomas Accord. He referred to a representative from Missouri as an N-word. And in response to a discussion of white supremacy by Jamar Tisby, a prominent black historian of Christianity, the account posted, please leave soon, sincerely, all white peoples. Right, why on earth would you post stuff like this? Oh, okay. Yeah, Elliot was just complaining about fuel prices. I totally misunderstood. Here I am. I was just going off, and Elliot was just upset with the high price of, of gasoline. Oh, my God. I mean, I know Elliot. Elliot's a man of peace and love. All right. And, and here I am just misunderstanding my friend. And I, I'm sorry, Elliot. I just totally I, I missed I missed your protest against rising inflation and the the way that capitalism is just you know strangling ordinary Americans. So Thomas Accord parted ways with a Christian school in Louisiana where he'd been headmaster. So this guy was a headmaster of a Christian school. And he's posting, you know, the N-word and, you know, telling, you know, blacks, please leave soon. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe I timed out my good friend Elliot Blaff. Absolutely nothing. I mean, I, I got to be honest here. I have succumbed to the authoritarian tendencies of, of being a conservative. Uh, you guys think that being a conservative is no big deal. It's not going to hurt anyone. You're just clinging to your guns of religion, and there's no harm in that. And I thought so, too, until 15 minutes ago. And now I realize that conservatism has so morally desensitized me that I have become a tyrant. I have become a dictator. I jumped to conclusions. Did I steal man Elliot Blatt's analyses? No. I, 
I took the most perverse, dark interpretation of his most innocent protests about rising inflation. And I acted in the most high-handed, now authoritarian manner. I, I can't believe that. And it's not just Elliot Blatt who I've tyrannized. I've tyrannized you, and I've tyrannized you. I, I, I've tyrannized our entire community with my overinflated, now moralistic, now egotistical, dictatorial, you know, Stalinesque way of operating. I, I, I racially profiled Elliot Blatt. I, Elliot Blatt's an honorable man. I, I can't believe I was that unfair to this good man, to this righteous man, to this kind and loving man. And I just got, my God, you, you start clinging to your guns and religion. Next thing you know, you're, you're just going on some authoritarian bender where you're timing people out who are simply protesting rising gasoline prices. My God. I mean, 20 people right now on YouTube have been damaged by my authoritarian behavior. That doesn't even include the six people on Rumble. All right? Doesn't even include the one person on my Facebook page. Right? Doesn't even include the one person on my Odyssey page. And thank God nobody's watching me on Twitter right now. Because they'd probably be traumatized for life if... if Oh, so sad. Get to the point, damn it. All right, let me get to the point. Okay, Thomas Accord parted ways with a Christian school in Louisiana where he'd been headmaster, and he said that the post from 20 or 2021 reflected a spiritually dark time marked by pessimism and anger and strained relationships. I should have been understanding. I should have been empathizing with Elliot Blatt. I shouldn't have been judging. I shouldn't have been otherizing him. I otherized him. I stigmatized him. I induced him to feel shame. My God. Thomas Accord eventually admitted that the Twitter account in question was his. He had trouble recollecting posts connected to it. Uh, Wolf wrote a Twitter thread repudiating these tweets, asked that his book be judged on its own merits. But the whole affair made it clear that even a sympathetic reader of Wolf's book for Christian nationalism right, could be confused about how exactly an ideology of amicable ethnic separation, how exactly does this differ from white nationalism? We're so. to dive into grief with people when that's where they are. We all want friends like that, but it means we have to cultivate ourselves to be friends like that, too. I'm so glad you said that. That's one of the that's one of the truest things and most useful things I've heard in a long time and just sit with people. It's exactly right. You don't need to talk. Shannon Bream, thank you for this and for the book and for your example to the rest of us. I can't believe the host of Fox News Sunday you're talking this way. It's so great. So thank you. Thank you. Congrats. Tucker. See you soon. That's about it for tonight. Tomorrow, we're going to take a much deeper look into the mass murder at a Christian school in Nashville. Throw aside the propaganda. What exactly happened and why did it happen? We're going to look at that in great detail tomorrow. In the meantime, though, throw off the cares of the world and enjoy the ones that you love. We hope you will. Have a wonderful night. See you Tuesday.
And welcome to Hannity. And tonight we are in Palm Beach, Florida, beautiful Mar-a-Lago, where in less than one minute we will be joined by the 45th president of the United States, Donald J. Trump. Now, you might have noticed the former president. He's been in the news a lot recently. Trump haters hoping and praying that he would be arrested in New York last week. It didn't happen. Alvin Bragg's weak and politically charged case against Donald Trump has now imploded just as President Trump's poll numbers continue to rise. Now, we have a lot of ground to cover, so let's get right to it. Here is part one of my interview with the former president. Mr. President, great to see you again. Thank you very much, John. Thank you for doing this. As reported, as you know, you're facing a lot of legal challenges. In your opinion, does this help you or hurt you in terms of your chances to win in 2024? Well, if you listen to the fake news media, it helps uh, because they're all saying it's a scam. Even, even people that don't like me are saying this is a terrible thing to do for our country. Okay, it's kind of interesting that uh, Donald Trump is back on Fox. They effectively blackballed him for about six months. Anyway, back to this New Yorker article on Christian nationalism. Scandal was a big deal in the small world of intellectual Christian nationalism. One difference between Stephen Wolf and someone like Jerry Falwell, who believed many of the same things, is that Falwell could plausibly claim to be leading what he called a moral majority, whereas many of today's Christian nationalists are keenly aware of their minority status, and perhaps as a consequence, they are less likely to worry about transgressing dominant social norms. In today's America, anyone eager to denounce sodomy is marking himself as a dissident. My God. So press three in the chat if you denounce sodomy. Press four if you are a sodomite. So if you denounce sodomy today, you are a dissident. You're not a defender of American culture as it currently exists. Rather, you are an enemy of it. So press five if you are an enemy of American culture as it currently exists. So Christian nationalist refers to a broad array of conservatives concerned, as conservatives always are, about the way their country is changing. But those who embrace the term are a much smaller self-selected group. So calling yourself in a Christian nationalist is a much more radical act than merely being one. So the presidency of George W. Bush was a high watermark for Christian politics. But uh, the country has become much less Christian over the past 20 years. Some of Trump's supporters put their Christian identity front and center. Many others do not. So you had the QAnon shaman, Jake Angeli, who was a January 6th protester. He prayed in the Senate. He referred to himself as part of a light occultic force. He thanked God for the divine, omnipresent white light of love and protection, peace and harmony. So this is the language of light workers and other contemporary spiritualists. So perhaps a shaman is the perfect figurehead for a movement defined by Christian heritage, but not by Christian faith. So America may now be following the trajectory of Europe, where Viktor Orban, the Prime Minister of Hungary, talks about the importance of Christian roots, even though fewer than 20% of Hungarians attend church regularly. So if the rise of Christian nationalism in America reflects the decline of Christianity, that is bittersweet news for secular liberals, because it means that they might expect to see more and more of it as the country grows less pious. So why do so many self-identified Christians seem uninterested in the religion itself? If America was once better than it is now, why did our Christian forebears allow it to get worse? So here, Stephen Wolf sounds more like a critic of Christianity than a defender of it. 
Christian majorities, he says, too often refuse to yield wield government power when they have it. Instead, they insist on official neutrality in ways that Muslim majorities, for instance, don't. Western Christians gaze at the ravishment of their Western heritage, either blaming themselves or reveling in their humiliation. So he essentially blames Christianity, as just as Nietzsche did, for siding with the weak, the low, and the botched. So Wolf thinks there's something weird about the way the U.S. and other Western nations reject ethnic chauvinism in favor of an ideology of universality. And one of the scholars who blurbed Wolf's book was the Israeli political scientist Yoram Hazoni, who suggests that American nationalists should draw inspiration from the example of Israel, which conceives of itself as the national state of a particular people. So the strange thing about the debate over Christian nationalism is the assumption shared by many of the participants. The sociologists see a fearful tribe, resentful of a country that won't stop changing. Exponents see a small but indomitable movement standing strong against the tide of secularism. So some see an opportunity for Christians to play a constructive role in a changing country, preaching what their compatriots may no longer practice. The underlying idea is that recent trends will continue, that churches will keep emptying out. Christianity will become an ever more tribal identity. So the secular country that emerges might be increasingly free, anxious, and unpredictable. Less prayer in school, perhaps more shamans in the capital. Why should we assume, though, that these trends are irreversible and that most of today's Americans are beyond the reach of a message that has reached so many for so long? Early periods of secularization in America have given way to periods of Christian renewal. Is the next Christian revival just around the corner? It seems hard to believe, but uh, certainly not impossible to believe. You want them to be healthy. You want them to be happy. You, know, you want your cows to be well. You don't want to mistreat and abuse your animals. That kind of ethic, I think, is what has driven historical state-led paternalism. Is you know, The majority of the population produces useful labor on the farms, in the factories. The average Joe, Joe the plumber, right? He does useful stuff. He helps build up our economy, build up our army, build up our military, build up our industrial capacity so that we can sail across the world and colonize and imperialize so we can invent new things, new technologies. We can support a priest class. We can support an academic class, a scholarly class with the efforts of Joe the Plumber. But technology has gone so far that you know, plumbing is still a, a well-paid profession, but the average person, this was said by Mitt Romney, I think back in 2012, that the average person takes out more in taxes than they put in, like 53%, right? That was the figure at the time. I'm sure it's higher now. If you take up all the prices of the roads and the healthcare and the welfare and the free food and the free education and the subsidized college, all the stuff that the government pays into, like the majority of people get more out of it than they pay into it in final analysis. And so. So this is uh, Kenneth Brown using deep left jokal talking in defense of globalists. So Kenneth Brown is consistently uh, brave, uh, contrarian. You know, throughout history, you can say that the elites were parasites. The bankers are parasites. They're usurers. They're taking 1% off the top. They don't perform any useful labor. And therefore, we should have communist revolution. We should abolish the elites, the capitalists. We should give power to the people, the workers, because they are the ones doing the real productive labor. I mean, that kind of argument made a lot more sense when... Glenn Medley makes a great point that I put Donald Trump in the same bucket as Dana Prina. That's right. I don't really care that much about what Donald Trump has to say anymore. So, yeah, as soon as 
Dana Perino comes on. I just like turn off the, the volume on Fox News. Uh, as soon as Donald Trump comes on, you know, turn off the volume. What about that hair? It was getting in the way of my doing, you know, the the divine will. It was just taking, you know, too much time to take care of all that hair. So now I've, you know, freed up energy and time that I can do more commandments. I love that comment there by Glenn Medley. Luke has put Donald Trump in the same in the same bucket as Dana Perino. We lived in an agricultural or an industrial economy, but in an economy where AI and automation has made the manual laborer more and more obsolete, less and less needed. There are there is still a need for strawberry pickers, but it's decreasing. The labor pool of manual laborers is decreasing and it's being paid less and less well because it's less and less valuable because they're less and less in demand. You know, the supply of people who are capable of picking strawberries is pretty constant. I'm capable of picking strawberries. You're capable of it. Everyone's capable of it. But the demand for it keeps dropping. And so the price of a strawberry picker keeps dropping. The, the, the economics are shifting. So the logic of paternalism, which just had a cold, rational, like if you're a farmer, you take care of your cows. If you're a king, you take care of your people. It makes economic sense. And kings who don't respect that law and farmers who don't respect that law of paternalism, they lose. You know, if you let your cows die, you lose money. If you let your people die, you lose your kingdom. That's no longer the case. Because the majority. Okay, a lot of great stuff going on in the chat. Let me pay heed. Alexander says the solution to YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook banning innocent people isn't to give these companies even more deregulation, tax cuts, and privatization. Artistic Merit says, buggery is thuggery. The 2010s were an unremarkable, uninteresting decade, completely devoid of substance and culture. Laponia says, we need to discuss what 40 did to Blatt. Then we need to heal. Griffith says, I'm a contrarian, which means like a conformist, I allow other people to dictate my opinions, but in the opposite direction. Alexander lists his favorite philosophers, uh, Marx, Durkheim, Comte, Bertrand Russell, Schopenhauer. Griffith lists John Winthrop. Okay, let's get a bit more from Kenneth Brown. People are no longer net contributors. Technology has made manual labor obsolete. And there's... Solid, there's an increasing majority of people who really aren't capable of much creative thought. They're not really capable, even programmers. You look at ChatGPT. For the last 40 years, programmers have had a good run. But in the next 40 years, I think we're going to start to see a decline in programming. I think the low-level programmers, the Python, the basic stuff, making websites, I think all that's going to decline. I think AI is going to take over the manual labor. I think the only programming that's going to be left is people who are working at the top, working on the AI itself, right? working at the higher level. I mean, this is the general trend we've seen in the rest of technology. Why not programming too? So even programmers are going to become outmoded. Lawyers, doctors, clerks, nurses, all these people at the lower levels, clerical work, accounting, it can all be done by AI. Truck drivers, teachers, all jobs are going to be threatened by this continued rolling out of technologies that have basically been in development for a while now, but they're, they're continuously rolling out to the public as something that can actually be implemented at scale in the economy. So you know, during this transition, this ethic of paternalism it doesn't make sense from a self-interested position, and it can only be upheld from a pure moralism. But my argument, maybe this is a Nietzschean argument, but my argument is that morality does not exist. It does not originate from an arbitrary deontology. It's not that there's some disconnected God 
who's separate from this universe and he's he's throwing down these laws you know don't have abortions and don't be gay don't you know all the stuff in the old testament and he's just tossing out these laws they're completely arbitrary you know ben shapiro gave this interview on joe rogan where joe tries to say something like uh, i don't know brings it up but they're talking about kosher laws it's like oh well you know maybe pig isn't kosher because you know pigs have a lot of intestinal parasites and, and so it's not really safe for humans to consume because back in the day they couldn't really perceive preserve meat very well because we didn't have refrigeration and so it makes sense to have a ban on pork and you know ben says hold up you know in judaism we don't try to justify the laws you know they are sacred because they are arbitrary and we take pride in the fact that they're totally disconnected from reality and they have no rational meaning to them that kind of morality uh it's traditional it's conservative it's nominalistic it's you know this is the law and we just blindly follow it whatever it says we never question it we never compare it against reality we never test it there's no empirical nature well, Maimonides, the greatest Jewish philosopher, said that you could find reasons for every single Jewish law. So some religious Jews take the attitude that uh, the Jewish law just came from God. We never question it. But uh, most people question it. Most people at various times will question it. And certainly not all Orthodox Jews follow all of Orthodox law. There's a great deal of pick and choose with how even Orthodox Jews practice their Orthodox Judaism. So it's not like there's just like, you know, one or, or just two approaches to to uh, Jewish law. Wow, I got Ricardo in the chat. I was just about to, to wind up the show, but if Ricardo's here, I, I got to push on. Elliot Blatt says uh, Ken Brown is talky. He talks about things he doesn't really understand. And uh, Ricardo says, wow, that headline. All right, let's uh, let's see if we can keep Ricardo's attention for maybe five more minutes. Nature to it, there's no logic to it. Um, I don't think that's sustainable. I don't think that promoting paternalism on the basis of its historicity is a sustainable morality. I think you have to check morality against reality. Now, I'm not saying abolish morality. I'm not. Oh, great! He doesn't say abolish morality. Morality primarily comes not from the Bible. Not from the pulpit, right? Morality primarily comes from your connections with other people. Ken Brown is a blowhard. Luke, what should happen to the trans fellow? I support the death penalty for people who commit murder. I want the death penalty for people who commit murder. And I want people to have the right to homeschool their kids. Right? I want the people to have the right to cling to their guns and to their religion. I want people to have the right to choose freedom of association. I want people to have the right to build up holy communities. And a holy community means a separate community. I want people to have a right to wall themselves off all right, from what they experience, what they see as you know, the filth and degeneracy that's surrounding them. Show the teacher clip again and get Ricardo's take oh you mean the teacher clips from the tucker carlson is luke training kaufness how to speak that that would be a legit mitzvah <laughs> uh i i think nathan should just uh watch some roger love videos erect the ghetto walls of healing yes ghetto walls are the most normal natural and if they're done moderately and wisely healthy things that you can do you should primarily be interested in spending time and living among and praying with, worshiping with, working with, socializing with, playing with 
people with whom you have a great deal in common, right? You're going to feel much more at ease. You're going to feel much happier if you are primarily hanging out with people like yourself. So morality comes from those connections, all right? If you uh, went to a stamp club, right, you would form bonds with people in that stamp club. If you went to a bowling league, you would form bonds with people in the bowling league. If you're a normal, natural person, all right, you get married, you have kids, and your primary excitement in life should come from being married and having kids, right? You don't need to get it from politics. You don't need to get it from religious disputation. You don't need to get it from fighting cultural wars. You don't need to get it by analyzing what's going on in China. The normal, natural way to get your morality, to get your meaning, to get your purpose, to get your identity is to get married, have kids, be part of the stream of life, be in a community with people who are like you. And out of that connection with people with whom you have real bonds, which may even include genetic bonds and religious bonds and values-based bonds, and just you feel comfortable around them. Luke could be a failed Senate candidate, just like his hero, Mickey Kaus. He could, he could run against Adam Schiff. Forty will watch 21 Jump Street and <laughs> change his mind on the ghettos. Luke should run for local office just for the life experience. Yeah, I mean, I, it's not like, oh, I, I don't want to subject my family. I don't want to subject my wife and kids to the tribulations of what would happen if I ran for public <laughs> public office. Luke could rebuild his audience with a meme candidacy. Damn, Ricardo's got all sorts of like ideas and, and you know insights that uh, would would never really occur to me. Look, guys, there will be times when I'll be honest with the voters. There will be times when I'll be dishonest. There will be times when I would be ethical and moral and upstanding. And there are times when I'd be unethical, immoral, and downright low and disgusting. Yeah, there are times when I will tell you the truth. There will be times that I'm telling you I'm telling the truth, but I'm really lying to you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Ricardo could be my Roger Stone. <laughs> Pick a race and go for it. Luke, you should really do it. I'm not saying, you know, every man for himself and you should just steal and kill and do whatever. That's not what I'm advocating. You know, I've used this term minoritarian and I've said that to the extent that we are going to exercise paternalism, we can't do it as a... Yeah, it's like, yeah, uh, Kenneth Brown uses a lot of big words, big concepts. Like he reads something and he just kind of slots it in and articulates it, but he doesn't really digest it and put it into uh, a wider context or, you know, analyze the, the relative merits of the, the proposition as opposed to opposition to the, to the proposition. So he uses a lot of big words there, but morality comes down to who do you love? Your politics, your morality, your religion, right? For, for a normal person should primarily come down to who do you love, right? If you love people, you want to protect them from those who want to negate discomfort, you know, rape, pillage, and wreck, all right, your, your people who you love, right? Who do you love? Do you love your family? Do you love your extended family? Do you love your tribe? Do you love your community? Do you love your religious community? Do you love people who subscribe to a certain set of practices and values, who have a certain outlook on life, right? Who do you love? That should be the basis of your morality, right? And 
who do you love that should be the basis of your politics and that should be the basis of your culture that should be the basis of your worldview who do you love once you you realize who you love then you should realize who you want to protect so i love the united states of america i love this country i love australia i love english civilization right? i have a particular fondness for what the english have created i like the political systems that the English have created. I like the legal systems that uh, the English and their descendants have created. I like the culture. I like the freedom. I like the values. I like the sports. All right. I am an Anglophile. I am a convert to Judaism. So I am very comfortable in Orthodox Judaism. And I, you know, I enjoy the, the disputatious, you know, intense, passionate, you know, Jewish culture. So that's what I love. I hate that which threatens it. So if you love your family and then your extended family and your, your tribe, your community, then your politics should revolve around protecting that which you love. Yeah, look, there will be times when I free some of the slaves and there will be other times when I leave slaves in captivity. There will be times when I will be the concentration camp guard and there will be other times when I'll be like a concentration camp inmate. It all depends upon events, my dear boy. Events. But whatever happens, I will always love our cops and our law enforcement, except for when I don't. <laughs> Most men would have rage quit after four Odie's tirade, but Elliot Blatt is still here. He is a true man of steel. He's a better man than me. I can't believe how unfair I was to this guy. What's the worst that could happen <laughs> if I run for political office that, that I win? Uh, you don't understand. There's, I love my life here. I am a happy guy. Like I was just around people today and they said, you're always happy. And no, I'm not always happy. I'm just 95% of the time I'm happy. I remember I went back to Loma Linda University in 2010 and I was talking with people who knew my father really well. And one of the, the major differences between myself and my father that, that jumped out to them, this is not me, this is them, them saying it, the various Christian theologians, and I noted, you know, you're a happy guy. You know, your father was not a happy man. That was like one of the big differences. So I'm a happy guy. I got a happy life. Now, would I really want to risk that and blow it up when there's you know, practically, realistically speaking, there's absolutely no way that I could win any local political race. Yes, guys, there will be times I'll place moral principles first. There will be times when I place my interests first. It will all depend upon the situation. Yeah, being high on modafinil can easily be confused with happiness. Yes. So I've been high on modafinil since 2013, I believe, maybe 2014. 2013 or 2014. And it's absolutely fantastic. I, I thoroughly recommend it. And also the other huge jump in my happiness levels came when I started using that, that Fisher-Wallace device. That uh, I use that for like 20 minutes a night. People noticed. People didn't notice a big jump in my happiness levels after I got a modafinil. People noticed a big jump in my happiness levels uh, once I got on the Fisher-Wallace device. The blanket. Uh free for all, you know, everyone gets paternalism, you know, oh, you're random Joe Schmo. Well, I'm going to 
work hard to make sure that you know you have a bunch of kids and you're happy and you have a middle class lifestyle. That incentive structure no longer exists. And if you're still pursuing that as like some kind of fascist or Rousseauian or national Bolshevik or something, you are operating under a logic that was perfectly applicable in the early 20th century when those ideologies were invented. But that is very quickly becoming outmoded and anachronistic. And it's based on a kind of emotionalist nostalgia for the past rather than a vitalistic logic of the future of what is actually going to work, what is actually going to survive. You know, ranting and raving about Rothschilds this, Rockefellers this, Bill Gates that, Soros this. They're destroying the world. They're not taking care of people. At a certain point, you have to stop complaining and you have to start redirecting your moralism. I'm not saying people should be less moralistic. You know, moralism is a powerful force for survival, for collectivism, for cooperation, putting others before yourself. It's absolutely necessary. But going forward, it's going to have to be a little tighter. It can't just be this blanket majoritarian, you know, my life's goal is to become dictator of America so I can save the people. I have I got, have I told you blokes how great this, this Fisher Wallace stimulator thing is? I mean, it's just fantastic. Oh man, I am now, I've got like four. I am just rocking. Like I'm seeing lights. I'm having visions. Like I just do this before I go to bed at night and I see visions, I see angels, I am surrounded by light and love. And yeah, it cost me like $600 when I was carrying over $50,000 in credit card debt back in 2014. I still lashed out $600 for the, the Fisher Wallace device. And it, it just zapped away the depression. Like I was walking around, I think, with low-grade depression virtually all of my life. And within a few days, maybe even a couple of days of taking this F Fisher Wallace device, it just went. It just like they're like electrical impulses. And I just see light and love. It just really, it takes the edge off. Like it really puts you in a great place. Now, you may not be man enough to handle four bright, bright you know, flashing yellow lights. So I don't want you to feel bad if you can't handle you know, four bright, flashing yellow lights right you recommend to start with two you know if, if if you get the effect that you need on just two then just hang out with two i mean you don't have to do the four like you feel the intensity building up like people do like deep you know magnetic uh stuff with their brain you know it's all approved by doctors or whatever and it just kind of it just recenters you and it just reduces my anxiety it reduces my depression. It helps me sleep better. It calms me down, just recenters me. It's fantastic. It's absolutely fantastic. I just strongly recommend the Fisher Wallace stimulator. I am becoming calmer. I'm becoming more loving. Right? I am evening out right now. I'm letting go of any residual bits of depression and anxiety right now due to this Fisher Wallace device you just you know let it run for about 20 minutes I sometimes fall asleep bro you could have simply stuck a fork uh, disavow I don't even think I can say that out loud and had the same results bro no this is this is FDA approved guys this is like studied this is science this is fantastic right the Fisher Wallace device like particularly you know I figure what like, half of my audience has you know chronic low-grade depression Right, you got to get the Fisher Wallace device. This had the biggest effect on my happiness level. 
once I started using this, people said, you just can't stop smiling. And, and it was true. Once I started using this, I've been smiling for about nine years now. I got this in 2014. And you can also use it on like various aches and pains. You don't have to just put it on your temples. Like if you've got sore feet, you can put it on there. Or you've got sore thighs, you know, sore stomach, you know, sore, you know, whatever you sore, bro. You can use your Fisher Wallace device and uh, significantly ups your happiness levels. And it comes with a money back guarantee. I think you can use it for like 30 plus days and, and return it if it doesn't work for you. I mean, why would you not want to get happy? I mean, why would you not want to let go unnecessary depression, unnecessary anxiety, unnecessary being off kilter, off center, ill at ease, maladjusted, antisocial, dysfunctional? Right? Why would you not want to let all that go and get yourself the Fisher Wallace stimulator today? Well, that anything I've ever done, this significantly increased my happiness levels. People noticed I was just always laughing and smiling, right? Once I, I plugged into this. Damn, I love this device. I mean, what am I doing here? I just want to have some quality time right now with my Fisher Wallace device. I like you guys. I really do. I really, really do. I like you and you like me. You really like me, but I just want to enjoy my Fisher Wallace device. And oh, I've been watching The Night Agent on, on Netflix. It is the worst 10 episode show I have ever watched. I, I, I'm still watching it. I'm like on episode seven because I like political thrillers. And I knew within 20 minutes that this was a low IQ, moronic show the writing is so bad it's so on the nose the acting is so wooden this is the worst 10 episode show i have ever watched netflix puts out so much crap and what a contrast to succession like hbo puts out so many great shows succession is just a fantastic show season four episode one last night i mean just so many layers i've watched the first three seasons twice of succession i mean I've just been reading these two new books on HBO. But uh, Succession, such a quality show. The Night Agent on Netflix, such a crap show. It is the worst show I've ever watched that's like runs 10 episodes, and yet I still watched it. I mean, and, and it's, it is produced by a guy who, who produced The Shield. The Shield was like one of the top 20 TV shows of all time. It's like a fantastic show. And the guy who produced that majestic work for like the FX channel, The Shield, right? Now it's produced utter crap for Netflix, but I still want to finish it. I'm also watching Lucky Hank, which is based on a Richard Russo novel about a an English professor. I love Richard Russo's novels. I've read all of Richard Russo. So that's also on my agenda. Lucky Hank. I want to watch Rabbit Hole, starring the, the dude who starred in the TV show 24. And... Uh, Half my audience has, yeah, I'd say probably half my audience has like chronic low-grade depression. So that's why I recommend the Fisher-Wallace device. I can't stop smiling, and you won't stop smiling either once you get your Fisher-Wallace device. Uh, Money-back guarantee. So I want to watch uh, Rabbit Hole, right? It's now streaming, so I should be able to find that somewhere. I'm going to finish the end of The Night Agent, all right? 
I, I like my political thrillers, but uh, you've been, you're such a lovely audience. Now, I, I want to, I want to take you home with me. I mean, I really do. I mean, it's certainly a thrill. You're such a lovely audience. I'd like to take you home with me. I don't really want to stop the show, but I thought you might like to know that the singer is going to sing a song and he wants you all to sing along. So let me introduce to you the one and only Billy Shears and Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs>